Hello, hello, welcome one, and welcome all to the Around the World podcast. I am your host, the one, the only, Clark Van Deventer, and today on the podcast, we have another installment of Why Don't We Do That?, where I interview interesting people and ask them questions about curious things they have observed in their travels around the world. Um, what I have typically done in the podcast, if you are a regular, you know this. I am introducing you or taking you on some tour of some country on some little corner of the great planet Earth. And that country that we talk about on the podcast, it just happens to be the same country I have talked about in my hit class around the world with Mr. Clark. These are live classes that meet every week on Zoom and these have been going on for years. If you have kids, no kids, or are a kid, you can sign up. All right, but around the time I was starting the Around the World podcast, I had an idea for another podcast. And I wanted to call that podcast, why don't we do that? Uh, what I later figured out is that I didn't need to start a whole nother podcast. I, why don't we do that, this concept for this podcast? It fits. It just it goes right along with the whole concept of around the world. Uh, here's the idea. As a traveler, when I visit a new country, I don't expect it to look like my country, right? I'm from the United States, and right, like there's certain ways that we expect life to look if you live in the United States, like based upon your your background, your history, your knowledge, just everything you've seen every day your entire life. There's a there's what you consider normal, right? But my home country, right, the United States, is a country of immigrants. And one thing that is cool about America is that we've taken all the best stuff from all over the world and we've made it ours. So when I travel and I find people doing things differently in other places around the world, I don't, I don't like naturally say like they should do it like us. Instead, I just go, huh, that's cool. Why don't we do that? Because about the most American thing I can do is go find cool things that people are doing around the world and bring them bring them home, all right? So what I'm doing in this series, I invite a guest on the show to share something cool they have discovered in some far corner of the world, some perspective that they have picked up. And, and it's just like, why don't we do that? I've done a number of these interviews already. They are awesome. You can go back through the podcast and if you're looking at the titles, they stand out pretty well because the podcast title always lists someone's name first. And I always note it with uh, WDWDT. Why don't we do that edition? So just look for that in the podcast titles. WDWDT. Why don't we do that? Uh, more interviews are coming. Today's interview is especially interesting because well there's lots of reasons why today's interview is interesting but i'll just start with this um this episode this interview it's the first time i've done an interview with some somebody who i've already interviewed someone else about that country okay if you go back on the podcast you can listen to my interview with jt and lydia gardner and you can listen to them talk about Spain. But my guest today, 
James and Angela Yur, they have a different perspective on Spain. It reminds me of what I've told people about skiing. I love skiing. I've skied hundreds of days. Just take one resort, my kind of home resort, Heavenly Mountain in Lake Tahoe. I've skied hundreds of days at Heavenly. And I tell people I've never skied the same slope twice. The snow is different. There's different variables. I take a different line. Uh, and JT and Lydia Gardner and James and Angela Yur, they went to the same country, but they saw different things. Okay, so let me introduce you to my guest for today, James and Angela Yur. Uh, I met James and Angela a few years ago, had dinner at their house. So this has come up several times on the podcast, but my wife and I, we were very involved with a humanitarian organization in Guatemala that James and Angela were supporters of. So when we were traveling in Southern Utah a few years ago, we connected with James and Angela and their family, and we were just super impressed with them. And then we became friends on Facebook, and Angela in particular, no offense, James, but maybe you're just not as active on Facebook, but Angela in particular would post these things, just really thought-provoking stuff. And I knew that they'd done some traveling around the world. So when I made my list of people, when I made my first list of people I wanted to interview for this series, they were on that list. Uh, James and Angela live in southern Utah. They have three teenagers and a tween. James started an education company and ran it for 14 years, transitioned out of that a few years ago, and has been on sabbatical since. James and Angela have a little side venture. They are running workshops for parents around relationships and family life. More on that in a moment. As I already shared in this episode, we will focus on their time in Spain, but they have traveled to 20 different countries. Uh, let's see here. Canada, Mexico, Guatemala, Puerto Rico. Uh, they went to Galapagos in Ecuador. Uh, Peru, Thailand, Bali, Morocco, Iceland. Man, I really want to go to Iceland. I should have talked to them about Iceland. England, France, Spain, Switzerland, Italy, Croatia, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, Slovenia. Interestingly, except for Thailand and Peru, they have visited all of these countries with their kids. Right, So they, they have experienced these places as a family, which again, is just interesting, right? Like, you will have one experience as a, a single 20-something traveler. You will have a different experience traveling in your 30s or 40s with kids. Uh, James and Angela are intentional people that will come across in the interview. In the interview, you will hear James refer to adventure being one of their family values. Uh, they have identified their family values as being well-being, connection, creativity, and adventure and travel is how they live their value of adventure together. Uh, they've been very intentional over the past several years. And they, again, this wasn't their life background. They talk about this in the interview. It wasn't like they grew up traveling. But several years ago now, they wanted to use travel as a way of having continuing education for themselves as human beings and their kids. And they began going on these four to six week trips 
with their kids. A lot of really cool perspectives in this interview. I sort of feel like Spain was just a jumping off point to get them talking about lots of cool things they have come to know through their deliberate travelers travels. But I loved their individual answers at the end of this interview about their top experiences in Spain. Hey, after the interview, if you are like, if you just find yourself saying, man, I need more Angela and James in my life. They just sound interesting. I'd like to know more about them. Um, head over to familyc.com. That's the word family and then C, right? Familyc.com. C is for, well, it stands for con um, confidence, connection, clarity, convenience, and creativity. So familyc.com to learn more about them and their work to help couples co-create the family life they've always wanted. All right. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with James and Angela Yer. So James, Angela. Hi, Clark. Hey, Clark. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. We're excited to uh, go around the world with you today. There you go. All right. So, well, we're going to go around the world a little bit today, but we first met in, I was at your home. You were kind enough to have me over to your house for dinner. But uh, that night we were talking about our experiences in a different country. Guatemala. Yes. Yeah. That was so fun. Guatemala was our first big international trip as a family. So talk to me about that. So our focus today is not going to be Guatemala, but we got we to gotta like pull this thread a little bit, right? Uh, talk to me about your family's experience in Guatemala. Yes. Why don't you start? Well, Guatemala was really a, a big transformation for our family because up until then, we had always wanted to travel internationally, but we'd never done it. And this was maybe like eight years ago. And it just seemed so daunting and so scary. And there were so many unknowns, everything from how do we get money? How do we find food? If we don't speak the language, how do we get around? And how do we find housing? There were just so many questions that were just absolute unknowns for us that it was, it was, it was one of those parts of life that feels both very exciting and terrifying. <laughs> and that's how we knew there was something in it for us. And then we met a couple of families who traveled a lot internationally. And just through talking with them, we got this sense that we can figure this out. We can do it. And so Guatemala was our first big trip as a family. And I kind of like mingled it with, I ran an education program at the time. And so we organized a nonprofit humanitarian sort of trip to Guatemala to, to help um, build garden boxes for people there to grow their own food. It's a very malnourished country. And so that was how we arranged it and structured it. And our family ended up spending a month there. So you talk about this kind of innate desire to travel. Like you had this itch for, to travel internationally. Where did, like, why? Where did that come from? Kind of just came from this desire to broaden our horizons. I mean, that's probably pretty common for travelers, but. You know, we had kids. I think our oldest was what, like eight or 10 at the Maybe. time. And 
um, yeah, it was just this desire kind of watching our kids start to grow up in, you know, a smallish town in America that everybody kind of does things the same way and believes the same things and just wanted to expose not only them, but ourselves to other human beings, other ways of living, other ways of thinking and doing things. So I think at least for me, that was a big part of the impetus in the beginning. And I would just add to that that one of our family's values is adventure. And it's become pretty much the main way we live that family value of adventure is to now we travel four to six weeks a year internationally um, with our kids. We've done that for the last, ever since Guatemala. And that that's become like a really key, like part of our experience together as a family is having that experience of being in another country not knowing jack about anything, not knowing how to do anything, and then at like asking our kids, all right, guys, uh, how are we going to get food? Where are we going to go? What do you guys want to do? And just facing the big scary world together as a family has really like filled our adventure bucket. Yeah. So Guatemala was how many years ago? That first trip? I think it was 2016. I know we've done seven summers now. Okay. So, so if, you're, if you're spending... A month internationally, four to six weeks, uh, seven years. Have you done seven countries as a family now? Well, they've been like several of the trips have been more like four or five or six countries, like, you know, in Europe. Yeah, where right. Uh-huh. But then there have been a year or two where, you know, like the year of COVID, we did just more sort of U.S. stuff, camping mm -hmm. style adventures. Um, a trailer trip one year up into Canada, but the other five years have been internet. Okay, so so your perspective is broadened, right? And I I want to just kind of set the stage for this conversation as we get to get ready to zoom in on Spain, right? So like I could have a conversation with somebody who who was just back from their very first international trip, yeah. and they maybe they've never spent any time outside of Springfield, right? But they just spent their very first week in Guatemala or their very first week in Beijing or wherever. And that that would be an interesting perspective. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Right? But you guys know, yeah, I mean, there's a, a month on average over seven years, lots of countries. Like, that's just the perspective that you now bring to this conversation we're going to have about Spain. Yeah, that it's fun to reflect back on what it felt like seven years ago when we were thinking about Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And I still remember all of the unknowns, all of the scary elements of that. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are kind of like, yeah, that there's so many unknowns. Um, and it has been a really fun journey and process to like experience. Now we've been to Canada, Mexico, Guatemala, Puerto Rico, Ecuador, Peru, Thailand, Bali, Morocco, Iceland, England, France, Spain, Switzerland, you know, and more like several more countries. I think we've been to 22 countries now. And it's just surprising how much that has shifted our perspective about the world and our self-concepts and the experience we've had as a family. Yeah. Right. Do you remember that first morning in Guatemala? I mean, we landed in Guatemala City and taxied over to our hotel. And we're just so, I mean, we're not exposed to anything at this point. And 
you know, just stayed in kind of a normal hotel for the area. And in the morning, I asked my Google Translate, I said in English, is it safe to go outside and held it up to the to the guy running the hotel and he just laughed <laughs> yeah it's safe to go outside and the hotel brought us like orange juice and i was like no dump it out kids like we can't we can't we can't drink that you know there was just like so many unknowns that were scary so it reminds me so going back years ago um well our family spent three months in thailand and we we spent one month in this little little town and we rented we rented a motorbike that was kind of like our family's mode of transportation. Yeah. But we were a family of five and we had a motorbike, <laughs> right? And, but it was a tiny little town and our kids at the time were were five, uh, how, well, they were five, three, and one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh. What we would typically do is I would like, we would leave our five and three-year-old at home and I would go drop our wife, my wife and our baby off at like wherever we were going. And I would then come back on the motorbike and get my other two, my five. Oh, man. And we were only, it was five minutes, right? So no problem, right? But finally at one time we just said, let's all get on the motorbike. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Thai style, man. <laughs> but, oh, you've integrated. <laughs> but we, so we went like two miles, right? And after the, after we did that, um, I was like, yeah, that's about as far as I want to go as a family of five. Seriously. Right? Fast forward two months and we're in, we're like in Chiang Mai navigating through traffic. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. You know, well, if you were to get a van, you know, like you'd be sitting in traffic for hours yeah. in Chiang Mai because you got to be able to just scoot between cars. <laughs> but five, five people. Like we saw plenty of families with five on scooters, but we never saw white people oh, yeah. on scooters. So you guys are probably you get uh, the award. So we would uh my 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 three year old would be in the very front in between my legs. I was driving, then my son, then my wife, and then the the baby in a backpack. Yep. That That's how you do it. <laughs> um I'm curious, have you traveled? In recent years, since you've been at that 10 plus, have you traveled, ever had the experience of traveling with somebody who didn't have experience? Like, and you were, you were able to see their reactions to things that were very normal to you at this point? Yeah. But like, yeah, we actually kind of have, because the last two years, our daughter who was 16 and 17 on the last two trips, um, she had kind of like had a lot of other things going. She's at that phase where she's really social and has a lot of stuff going on. Um, so we let, to make it really attractive for her to still come on our family trip, we let her invite a friend. And so both both times she invited a friend who had not much international experience. And that was really fun to watch them process things with us together. and. We often would like around meals, like to have conversations like, hey, what's what's been big? You guys, what have you noticed? What's standing out to you about this country? What what have been exciting things? When have you been scared? You know, and so we had some fun conversations around that to kind of like tune into what they were experiencing. So we definitely share a similar outlook on travel, right? So I one of my lines that I always use is that 
uh, uh, travel is not my my search for perpetual bliss. It is my continuing education, right? I'm trying to go out yeah. and that. broaden my view of the world. Um, but let's talk about Spain. So what, what? let's just start with this. What do you love about Spain? Mm, so much. Where do we start? Well, I would, I think as we have like processed our experience there and really kind of like integrated it, the thing that maybe stands out the most to us is just there's no need to be in the rat race. Mm -hmm. Like it's such an American thing to always be aspiring and achieving. And I feel like Europe, some some parts of Europe do a, a much more skillful job of slowing down and living life. And Spain is one of those places that, I mean, if a three hour siesta every afternoon doesn't tell you to slow down and live life, I don't know what's going to, you know? Mm-hmm. And even on a broader level, it's interesting to start to pick up how different countries sort of have their own personality, their own values, even like personality type. I mean, for anyone interested in personality types, they totally do have their own personality type. And honestly, Spain was not for me like my spirit country, my people, like the most resonant culture for me personally. But there still were, were just so many things like this, you know, not being in the rat race mentality that just felt so good and gave me a lot of context for America's values and differentiating and being able to see the different ways of doing things and believing what's important. Yeah, like I remember in college, I was an English major and I remember having a conversation with one of the like advisors or something. And I was like, hey, why do I have to take a foreign language? I had to like study French. And I was like, I'm an English major. Why am I studying French? And they're like, well, you can't understand English until you have another language because it contextualizes mm -hmm. English. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what travel does. It contextualizes America and our experience here and helps us understand where we are positioned in the universe, basically. So a common theme that has come up in all of my interviews has been people talking about a slower pace of life, whether that was someone that I, I had a guest on talking about Sierra Leone in West Africa. I had someone talking about, okay, we've had France and other countries, but everyone talks about the slower pace of life. Supposed to just accept a, a, like a lower standard of living. Do we want to make less money? Like what's the, well, I don't know if they're after here. Like, is there a therefore other than just contextualizing, like, for example, oh, America values productivity, achievement, living the American dream, which, like, those are all arguably great things to value. But it takes a little bit of the pressure off, especially for someone like me, who that's not my natural personality type, to be an achiever, to be, like, in a super productive state of mind all the time, it just helps me take a breath and realize, oh, that's not the only way, the only valid way to live your life, like to hold yourself up to this standard that's actually an American ideal, not a universal human ideal of what it means to be a good person. 
So do you feel validated when you travel? Absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. I'm a lot more productive than most Spaniards. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we all think about Spain in general being a, a wealthy Western European country. Yeah, for sure. So, but I, I, so it's not like they're an, this isn't an, an impoverished country. No, but I think if you look at Spain's history, I have a story in my head around Spain's wealth and how it's influenced their personality at, as, a, as a whole, which anytime you take millions of people and you paint with a broad brush and say any form of those people, you're painting inaccuracies and you're working injustices and it's right. like ever accurate. So I just want to start by saying that. And I also want to just say this is a story in my head and it's it there are probably lots of elements to it that aren't true but the story that formed in my head as someone who studied history some and been to Spain a couple times and done a lot of walking tours and reading and just kind of learning about the history I think that Spain has been influenced by the way that it acquired its wealth which was you know Columbus and and conquering the Americas and exploiting and getting all that gold that came back and formed the basis of their, um, you know, their their treasure, mm -hmm. and the the repercussions of that. Like they've been riding on that for a long, long time, mm -hmm. and um, and I think that that sort of like because there's not a more obvious way that Spain has a an infrastructure and an ecosystem and a, and a financial system based on industry of other kinds. Like there's no clear industry that I tuned into in Spain. There's a lot of tourism and stuff, but there's, and there's beaches and there's restaurants, but of course you have that stuff everywhere. So I think that there's still this sense that it's culturally kind of riding on those exploits of the past. And I think that influences the culture a little bit, you know, again, like the story in my has is kind of like a trust fund kid who <laughs> got the wealth, didn't know how to create it themselves the first time, but did know how to acquire it, which is took something. I mean, they had right. phenomenal um, resources to go over and they had trust in Columbus. And there was a whole, there's a whole still really amazing, inspiring story around that. Also kind of like a sad story around it. Um, so I don't mean it as a judgment, but I guess it is a judgment that's formed in my head. And I don't know if it's true or not, but that's kind of like my thought. Are you familiar with the generation of 98? This thing. And so mm -hmm. the Spanish-American War in 1898 was when the Spanish lost their empire, right? So the whole 1800s, right? The Spanish mm -hmm. empire slowly atrophies, right? The revolution and everything. Yes. And then in 1898 with the Spanish-American War, which the Spanish lost, they were forced to give up all of their remaining foreign territory. So it is, 1898 is the end of the Spanish Empire. Like at that moment, all that's left is Spain. Wow. Okay. Right? And so it is a thing in Spanish history, they call the Generation of 98, where um, it's like the country was grappling with, well, we, we used to be a great empire. We're not anymore. Mm. So what are we? Yeah. Yes. And I don't know a ton about it. I basically just now told you everything I know. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah. what you're saying um, is it's almost like you're expressing that you have observed this grappling. Yeah. 
Yeah. And in fact, I want to just pause there and thank you for being willing to talk about history a little bit, even though that's like, <laughs> you were like, this is the extent of my knowledge. And this is, again, one of the things I love about travel, because this is just a little side rabbit trail that I'm going down right here. But I think it's worth pointing out in the conversation, because so often we think, I'm not going to talk in public about this thing that I don't really understand and I'm no expert about. But part of the value of traveling is getting our brain into environments where we are clueless. We don't know. I'm not an expert on Spanish history. And yet, by getting exposure to the things I got exposure to, sort of like I'm picking up breadcrumbs and forming narrative, yeah. coming to understand stories. And then we'd banter about those stories back and forth. And I'll, I would I would share that story I learned with a, a Spanish friend and say, hey, man, point out where I'm wrong. Yeah, Here's the story right. that formed in my head. Show me where I'm wrong. And I think that there's a really healthy thing that happens in society when we are capable of sort of sticking our neck out and saying, hey, man, here's a story in my head. Here's the way it seems to me. I have a very limited experience. Help me see where I'm wrong. Um, having the permission to do that is something that I think travel does for us because there's no way you can be an expert in all the places that you go. And there's also no way that you can avoid forming opinions and judgments. So having conversation about those opinions and judgments is sort of like how we filter them and poke at them and prod at them. And it creates this like liberal arts education that's broader and, and, and deeper that we wouldn't have if we just stay getting expertise in our own little bubble and only opening conversations in areas of our expertise. That's just another thing I love about travel and thought that was worth pointing out. That's so true. In a position over and over of being a beginner. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is such a valuable mindset to have. Mm -hmm. So this is very contrary to the tone of our public discussion in the United States today. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the tone of that conversation, it tends to be increasing the stakes. Everything is increasing the stakes. Don't say that word. Don't say that. Don't, don't express what you're actually feeling. Instead, package it up in a way that is palatable for public consumption. And it doesn't give us a chance to actually integrate and to like self-confront because it's not safe enough. And I think what we have to do is lower the stakes around big conversations, make it natural to engage in big conversations, even when you don't know what you're talking about and do it in a way of, hey, this is, this is like my perspective right now. And I'm sure that there are areas of a, that are flawed. Can you show me? And if I, you know, and, and, and help me to see where my blind spots are, I just think like that's a much more, it, it's the kind of conversation that results in a dialogue in public that moves things forward and connects people rather than polarizing us. So what were rhythms of life or things you observed in Spain that broke down um, the the lofty values of American thinking for you? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to walk you through kind of the feeling of a day over there, it was like no rush to wake up in the morning. And this isn't just us. I mean, first of all, of course, with... Um, you know, jet lag, which we never really quite got over on this trip. We just all wanted to be asleep until nine in the morning. And then, but, but that was perfect because so was everyone else. 
And so you go out, you know, we, we would usually go out in the mornings. We learned this the hard way because when you don't go out until the afternoon, everything's closed. So we would go out in the mornings and find something for breakfast. And usually it was just as cheap to eat breakfast out as it was to buy groceries and eat breakfast at home. So we would often eat out for breakfast, you know, find whatever groceries we needed for the day. And this is a part of the daily rhythm as well, because no one has a car. No one has no one can carry home more than they can carry in one grocery trip. So it was very much a daily rhythm, um, especially just buying the fresh stuff that's always available, the breads and, you know, stuff that was just made that day, cheeses, fruit, whatever. Um, and life just takes on such a daily, it was different because at home I normally have sort of weekly routines. Like I would just do huge amounts of laundry once a week and go to Costco and load up my trunk once a week. Whereas in Spain, it was like, okay, you've got this tiny washer and you've got to hang dry everything. You have to have space on your line for all of your clothes. So every day we kind of had to keep up with our daily rhythms in that way. And then, you know, everything really does just shut down in the afternoons, grocery stores, restaurants, everything. So it was usually either like, let's go to the beach for the afternoon or let's, um, you know, go tour somewhere, go walk through a cathedral, something like that. And especially it was hotter than expected. So it was also a matter of how can we keep cool throughout the day? That was so it was very much just these rhythms of like meeting our needs keeping cool, taking care of our kids, and then trying to squeeze in some cultural experience. Um, so yeah, then like, you know, dinner wise, restaurants don't open until 8.30. So it's kind of like, you know, if you show up at 8.30, they're like, geez, you know, like calm down. <laughs> People are out at nine or 10 to go and leisurely eat some dinner. I mean, we saw families out for dinner at at twelve thirty p.m. Eight. So, I'm so I'm so glad you're saying this and, and that we're having this conversation. My wife has been to Spain. I have not, and we're planning on spending uh, a month going from Italy to Spain oh. next year, and we're going to do a couple. Of, we're going to do a couple of weeks in Barcelona, like kind of travel for a few weeks and then oh, stop you'll love it. for a few weeks. But um, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because, like, I. Of course, I know I've heard people talk about the late dinners in uh -huh. it's Spain, but um, in my mind, I'm thinking like, yeah, we'll go to dinner at 830. But but your thing right there where you just said like, <laughs> yeah, you show at 830 and they're like, calm down. <laughs> yeah. Like we I mean, multiple times we were like, OK, but surely it was just that one town or that one like neighborhood that did. But no, like every time we went before 930. There was just this feeling of like we were the only ones in the restaurant. Which is my preference anyway. So I liked coming at about 830. <laughs> so I'm grappling with this. We are and, and I'm just grappling with it, right? Like I don't have a I don't have an agenda. Um we are having this podcast and, and doing lots of interviews where we're trying to learn from other cultures. And we're like, wow, in Spain they they um they don't have trunks to load their Costco stuff in. So they have to go to the market every day. And they like, is that better? What, why is it like, why do we, 
why do I feel this need to look around the world and look away other the way other people are doing things and be like, we should be like that? Why don't I just celebrate the fact that we have Costco? And oh, we- totally. I love Costco. <laughs> I don't I don't know if you can appreciate Costco unless you've lived in Spain. Right. <laughs> like like it just contextualizes how amazing it is. Like when I got home from Spain, another thing that you know, there so there's two directions that I think we could talk about. One is how does Spain and what we learned in Spain um sorry, how how does Spain and what we learned in Spain crack our values and open us up to new values and also how does it make us appreciate even more what we have in our current life Mm -hmm. and um both of those are valuable conversations we've kind of like gone right quickly to how does it make us appreciate our life more right here but i want to go back to the other one eventually but another way that it makes us appreciate our life we've talked about costco like how how convenient it is to go into my garage get in my nice car drive to costco Use a giant freaking cart, push it around and get super high quality produce and other delicious food, Bring it, drive it back, like park there for free, drive it back right into my garage and unload into my giant refrigerator and pantry and not think about it again for a week. Like that's such a huge benefit that if we hadn't traveled, I would just take that for granted. Mm-hmm. And another one of those is as soon as I got home from Spain, after like having to walk across town to find a gym and going to gyms that were not air conditioned in when it's like 85, 90 degrees in the gym and just kind of like sweating on this like 1980s equipment where you're all packed in tight and they're just used to it. Like everybody's in everybody's way, but nobody cares. And I pretend that I, fit right in and that I don't care either. But dude, when I got home, I was like, I can get in that same air conditioned car, drive to a freaking nice gym that's like a mile from my house, have all the space in the world, have the nicest equipment, have it air conditioned. And it was like so exciting for me to get home and have access to all of that. And it really like made me appreciate what we had there as another example. So where's an example of it cracking your values? Like where you go, we are just really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think if you like, if you if we dig into the the daily rhythm that Ange brought up, I think we can tease some things out of that. For example, walking to the grocery store, walking to restaurants. All the restaurants have seating in what they call the plazas or plazas, you know, there, and the the plazas are like cobblestone. Um, park type type places that are between all the big old buildings and there's just plazas kind of everywhere and all the restaurants surround the plazas and kind of dine out and you're walking everywhere and i think what happens when you have that as the backdrop rhythm of your life is you bump into people more often you know your neighbors you're eating with your neighbors you're sitting at a restaurant in public eating dinner in the same spot every night during the week. You're connecting with all the business owners. Your kids are playing together because they all finish dinner and then they go play together. And like in America, I feel our perspective is that we kind of suck at community now. Like community happened in America when we, 
when it happened by default. We helped our neighbor raise our barn. We we pulled together to care for our aging parents who now just go to nursing homes. You know, we we pooled our resources for to get through the winter. And all that stuff and ha happened just by default. And as a result, humans, like we we got wired for this deep sense of community. And now the market and the state have gobbled up all of those things that used to bring us together. So now we just use money for everything. Mm -hmm. And we use our big automobiles and our big pantries and our big refrigerators. And we put our parents in nursing homes. And we, we do all these other things that give us more freedom. Mm -hmm. they, they really take away our community and we're hungry for that. We're starving for that. We don't know how to get that. And in Spain, there's a lot more of it. There were festivals and parades mm -hmm. and puppet shows and bullfights, which are kind of controversial and just so many events that foster community. Yeah. I don't know if Spain totally did this on purpose, but the way that life is set up there really kind of cracks the code on community, like just physically the way that all the living spaces are kind of on second, third, fourth stories of buildings, which at the base are shops and, you know, coffee shops, restaurants, grocery stores. So really, and then there are plazas every, I mean, you, you wouldn't be able to walk for five minutes without finding another plaza. They're just everywhere. So Everything you need is really within walking distance, which is good because there's no parking spaces anywhere. So it just forces you to to like during the course of meeting your normal needs every day, interact with all the people around you. I think that most of us, uh, at least anyone who's even read about life in Europe, right? We're familiar with the, the idea that they walk more. Mm -hmm. that the cities are more walkable. Yeah. And and the, there's obviously a a health, a physical health uh, yeah. to walking more. But honestly, I hadn't thought about the the mental health. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. Yeah. I certainly have a mental health benefit when I'm outside in nature and I'm walking, yeah. right? Like that. But the community, I, I hadn't thought about how community would be fostered and man you are just like really hitting on something that is so important in terms of of quality of life and that's community and and you said we suck at it yeah and you can get it here you just have to be intentional about right. it to go out of your way a little bit more a, a lot more and it also challenges and like we were talking about how does how does spain crack American values and make us rethink our position on things. Well, Americans tend to have a rugged, fierce independence, mm -hmm. and we pride ourselves on that. Right, it goes all the way back to our founding story. Mm -hmm. So we, I live in the West, and we think of these rugged pioneers who came across, and they were self-sufficient, and of course they worked together too, and they had that community. But we don't need to work together in the same ways, except in 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 business. In all other ways, we're like kind of automatons. We're like on our own figuring this stuff out and and this really cracks that sense of fierce independence and just being there for that long makes you really question what are we losing mm -hmm. by so fiercely clinging to independence and each needing to have our own lawnmowers tools ladders cars garage home big property you know park in our own backyard and like yeah. all the other things that 
that we all are part of the American dream, but actually make it harder for us to share and collaborate and connect and bump into our neighbors and actually like engage with the humanity of others in a meaningful way, not just at business, but in our lives more consistently. And in Spain, the way the whole thing is set up, you can't avoid it. Mm -hmm. And that's how it used to be in America too earlier, but it's not anymore, at least where we live. Okay, can I get you to take a stab at what public policy, okay, can I do this? What would public policy look like in America that that fostered uh, both both the the physical movement that and, and community engagement? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. The immediate thing that jumps to mind for me is the way that we do zoning laws, just like, you know, I live in a neighborhood in kind of a suburban area in southern Utah where it's, you know, they have this term that real estate agents use that's NIMBY, not in my backyard. So they say NIMBYism is a big thing that prevents more community because people who own their own nice, expensive homes put up a lot of resistance to you know, having a gas station put in on the corner by their house or having an apartment complex that offers low income housing for lots of folks instead of, you know, just single family homes that are becoming less and less attainable. Um, So it's this fear, I think, that a lot of people have that, you know, introducing more commercialism and more low income housing is going to, you know, drop the value of my home, increase crime, um, you know, maybe just a fear of the unknown, of the types of people who will move in. So I think it's just a lot of fear. And then, of course, the elected officials who get to make those decisions are responding to the public and to the whatever voices are in their ear around the topic. So I think fear is a lot at the root of it. Yeah, and... I'll I'll introduce an idea that seems like it might kind of like go against what Ange just shared, but it doesn't. In the end, they kind of align. And that is that I think we build our communities here around commerce. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are other ways to do it. So for example, the town I live in, St. George, Utah, is one of the fastest growing communities in the United States. And it's building, we're building like crazy, but the way that we're building doesn't feel very intentional. It feels to me like we've got builders in charge of deciding what types of homes and what types of things go where, and we're just leaving it completely free market. And again, that goes to our rugged independence, you know, let the invisible hand guide everything. And I think, I think like growing up on American independence and being having that deeply instilled within me as a child. In fact, like my professional background is in law and I studied constitutional law for a long time. That's that's like my passion. And I grew up very conservative in my perspective around this stuff. And traveling has just popped that bubble. I'm like, that. I, I wouldn't just leave it to the free market and to the, hand, the, the invisible hand to create a community that feels good. What you're gonna end up with if you do that, which is what's a lot of, a lot of what's going on here is you've got builders controlling everything. And so, yeah, they're going to dish out, they're going to build as many 
stick houses as they possibly can to get as much money as they possibly can. And I feel like, wait, can we just slow this down? You know, can we bring like, let's, let's slow it down in Europe when they build, they build to last and they think long-term and we, the Airbnbs we stayed in, some of them were built in the 1200s. Mm -hmm. So it's just such a different mentality there. And I feel like we could be building here with a much keener eye to walking trails and parks and like planned communities where there's a design and an aesthetic that's very pleasing spread throughout the community with a little more social cohesion. So it means something to live here. You don't have different homes that just don't even match up right next to each other. Um, and so I used to be against like HOAs and stuff. And I'm just, that's not how I feel anymore. I just feel like if you want to have a feeling in your space that has to be intentionally created. And I think it's up to those who are running local communities to get intentional about the space and really ask, how do we want it to feel to be here? What does it mean to be here? And instead of just letting builders have whatever permits they want, wherever they want, place some constraints, pull it together, get an intentional feeling going throughout the community. And yeah, it, it costs more in the short run, but in the long run, everything preserves its value more and everything just feels nicer and it feels like it means something to be there. So I think that that's like another way of thinking about things that we could do here to create more of that walkability, community-oriented um, type space. Okay. Uh, well, we have very similar backgrounds in terms of our, our interests when we were young and our my, my political bent, our political bents when we were when we were young and yeah and so I, I just so much of what you said I'm like yeah um, travel broke me and it it broke me open <laughs> but the pushback is you know what the pushback is is you're just trying to make America like socialist Europe yeah right <laughs> and yeah. I, I mean I guess I'd say to those people like have you been to Europe like mm -hmm. it, like it's fabulous. Yeah. Oh man, American exceptionalism. The idea that we can behave differently because we're American and we get special privileges because we're American and underneath it all there's a hubris. There's this assumption that we're actually better humans and more and smarter and more intelligent. And like on one hand, I'm like, well, look at the US Constitution. It's actually like the best constitution that's ever been created when measured in terms of freedoms created and abundance generated. Like it's the most insane, amazing document the world's ever seen when it comes to channeling human nature to its most productive uses. So I get if that. That's, if that's the desired outcome. Right, right. exactly. Like I, I get that. But I think one of the challenges of being human is we're until our bubbles are popped, we're so prone to judge other people by our values and not know that's what we're doing and not know that there are other sets of values that are equally legitimate, equally valuable, that create a very different kind of living. And I think the value of travel with an open mind is it's painful in that your bubbles get popped. And it's beautiful in that you have new space for new values, new ideas, new ways of doing things. 
So you have way more resources to make the same decisions than you had when you were stuck in your own bubble. Okay, I love that. Uh, in preparation for this conversation, I sent you a couple of things, a couple of prompts, and you sent something back to me. I just want to read okay, and let you comment on it because it is right on this topic. So this is what, I'm not sure which of you wrote this. I think I know, but um, it took me a long time to figure out that my impressions and judgments of other countries was actually me looking through the lens of my values at people and cultures with different values. Example, Spaniards can seem lazy and inconsiderate to me. Why? They stay up late and sleep in. They can't be bothered to work more than a few hours a day. They are some... They uh, sometimes seem unresponsive and or uncaring. They can be loud. So <laughs> what I finally realized is that they are actually living their values. They value rest, community, connection, sustainability, enjoying their lives. Mm. Yep. Uh, okay. Elaborate. Mm. Yeah, that just makes me remember, like, also... And I think I think I probably wrote this, but also the experience of the service industry there, like, um, you know, waiting in line for train tickets. There was a time, you know, there was never a short line and it was always like one, maybe two employees at the train station. And, you know, we would wait in line for at least an hour. We had these they were supposed to be these super easy your rail passes that actually kind of made our experience more complicated. But <laughs> Um, anyway, like one time we waited in line for an hour and then we're told at 2 PM we're closing for siesta. There's no, you know, like there's no heads up about this 30 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago. It's just, all right, come back at five 30. It's like a three and a half hour siesta. Yeah. Um, and I just like, I had some rage come up for me when that wow. happened. Like, that's so inconsiderate. How dare you just, like, let all of us stand here for so long and then dismiss us? Like, well, yeah, try again later. Um, and just, like, the inefficiency of the way that some things are run over there can be infuriating to Americans who value our time so much and value efficiency. Um so yeah, that was an experience where I really got judgy in my head. Yeah, so that would definitely make the list of things that, right? So we, we're doing this like big Spain love fest, but that would definitely make the list of things. <laughs> yes. Oh, and there were a few things. I mean, absolutely just experiences of, I hate this and I'm so glad that I live in a country where we don't run things this way. Yeah, and now when I live in the States and I go to the airport or a bus station, I hate it less. Yeah. I uh, definitely hate it less. Yeah, we're still standing in line at the DMV, but it's like you can book your appointment ahead of time. You can do things that minimize how long you're standing there yeah, waiting. I, yeah. Yeah, you you go, um, yeah, we, we really value efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad we. I I value efficiency. I'm right. right. Too. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it harks back to the English. You know, like like 
I think the English are the ones who really developed efficiency in our modern world. And, you know, I think American efficiency can be traced back to to the English. And, and that's sort of like, there's a whole set of mindsets around it that is part of our heritage here. It goes deep for us and we love it. And, it, and like, that's a value that's ingrained that I love, but I get it now. Mm-hmm. I get why Spain does it the way they do it. And even though I have judgments come up, because of the travel we've done, we know how to have judgments come up without believing our own judgments. Mm-hmm. We know how to have stories come up about people without believing our own stories because we've been with those people long enough now that we can't deny their humanity. And we also have been in with them long enough that we start seeing the value that they get out of their values and their lifestyle that we're missing. And it just shows us and humanizes like the broad range of humanity and what it means to be a human that expands so much when we travel and it denies us the luxury of sitting in our armchairs judging each other according to our own value set. You just, you can't do that when you travel a lot. You, you don't have that luxury. And that's a, a soul expanding experience that for someone who's naturally judgmental like me, my brain likes to take shortcuts and jump to conclusions and yeah. find patterns and believe those patterns, believe those stories. It's been such a great part of my education. And it's like, like popped those elements and given me a lot more empathy and understanding and I'm better at listening and, and really trying to understand what the values of different perspectives rather than immediately bringing my perspective as the starting point. Mm, beautiful. Hey, that is, I think we've done it right there. We've like, we've like said what we need to say. Um, but I do want to ask one more question and that, that is, so I'm not going to ask you your number one um, because I think that puts too much pressure on the question. What is what is? Let's just capture Spain in a in a moment. What is an experience, a place, a thing that you you saw in Spain that you were like, yes, this is this made worth getting on the, this made it worth getting on the plane. I, I've got an easy, immediate one, but I wanted to see if you wanted to share one first, if you had one. Oh, yeah, I know what yours is. Mine mine is Sagrada Familia. It's a cathedral uh, designed by Gaudi, who is a pretty famous architect and artist over there. Um, I can't remember the timetable. I think 1800s or so. But it is just mm. the most magnificent man-made structure that I've ever seen. I just... I mean, there was just, I don't have these as frequently anymore as a more seasoned traveler, but it was just this moment of total awe walking into this space, which of course was interrupted by kids like, mom, how long are we going to be here? Mom, what, did you get the audio guide? You know, <laughs> but it was just, that was my number one. And James has his. Yeah. My number one was being in the stadium after the running of the bulls where my my son who's 16 everybody's going to judge me for this i know i know like people who love my son have certainly judged me for letting him do this with me um but it was like a rites of passage thing he really wanted to do it and we did the running of the bulls together with another friend and my friend's 16 year old son so the four of us did it and just like <clears throat> running down the road away from these giant brahma bulls with huge horns just like flipping people <laughs> right and left and like staying in front of them and then like 
watching him pass, like trying not to get pick up a horn. It was so exciting. It was like, it was, it was so funny and and, and just like wow. so memorable. And at the end, you know, like if you if you run fast enough, you can make it into the stadium where all the balls go at the end. And then they put these little like caps on the bulls' horns, which again, people are going to judge me because like I'm actually like. I love animals and I want to care for animals. And I had mixed feelings about this. Um, but Spain loves their bulls. And I love how they honor and treat their bulls over there, even though bullfighting and all that. Um, but it's way better than the way we treat our McDonald's bulls. I can tell you that. And anyway, just I have mixed feelings about it myself, but I'll just put myself out there and get judged because it's just like it was so big for us and so fun. Um, but being in that stadium at the end with those bulls after they put little caps on their horns and getting to kind of like, just play in there. Oh my gosh. In America, I was like, I didn't sign a waiver for this. Nobody knows my right. name. Nobody's going to get sued. There's no way anybody cares about that. It's like the wild west. And I just freaking loved that. I ha we had, we just had so much fun with that. And I was like, only in Spain can you experience this. <laughs> we definitely have a litigious society, don't we? Yeah. In the United States, we, when, when you do travel and you have these things, you're like, oh my gosh, this would never fly in the, we're right for all the talk about the land of the free. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, this has been great, guys. I've loved this so much. And I appreciate the perspective that you shared today. Yeah. Thank you, Clark. We just, it's, it's fun to reflect back and to have a chance to like ingrain these epiphanies and realizations we've had too from travel. So thanks for the opportunity. All right. It's a pleasure.